Uh, we'll be reading from the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, uh, 11, 1 through 6. Uh, I begin. Uh, I say then, God. I get nervy up here. <laughs> I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the, t- of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know the, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine respond, say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your grace, for by which we are saved, Lord. We thank You. We thank You for Your Word. And we pray that Your Word through Jackie comes to our hearts and and we open our hearts to You, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been working our way through uh, Romans... Remember, we began the journey looking at the principles of the righteousness of God. And as we look at the principles of the righteousness of God, we recognize in the first three chapters our our own brokenness. And then chapters 3 through 5, we we recognize God's healing. Our brokenness we call sin, and God's healing we call justification. That He, by grace, made us as if we had not sinned. It is... Fully and completely as we work our way um, through the, the book of Romans, we see it totally by grace, not on our own merit. He went on to describe to us the work of sanctification. Remember that God works in us. Because God took up residence in our life. He made us holy. So in a sense, our sanctification has already taken place. In another sense, our sanctification, or we are being sanctified moment by moment, day by day. But if Jesus Christ lives inside of you, then you're holy. Because He is holy. And if Jesus Christ lives in you, your desire changes. And it's no longer about an external set of commands, but now it's about an internal desire to please God, to love God. That is the work of sanctification. 
leading us to security and glorification in chapter 8 as we looked at the fact that there is now therefore no condemnation, right? We began and at the end, there is no separation. All the promises that God laid out for us through justification, sanctification, glorification, the work of salvation that Jesus Christ wrought at the cross for you and me. That's Romans 1-8. through But then we began looking at the problems of the righteousness of God. Because we had this thing in chapter 9. Remember the election of Israel? God chose Israel. And that because God's God, He's got the right to choose them, doesn't He? So God chose Israel. Then when we come to chapter 10, we saw not only the rejection of Israel of their Messiah, but the reception or the receiving of Messiah by the Gentiles. All of which was foretold throughout the Scriptures that these things would come to pass. So it shows us the plan of God's salvation. As it got off track, this is all part of God's purpose. That He pulled out for Himself a special people, Israel. He chose them. They're His elect. They rejected their Messiah, which opened the door for the Gentiles to come in. And all the nations able to come as a result of the Gentiles. And then, as, as we see in chapter 11, now He moves toward the restoration of the nation of Israel. In chapter 11, that's, that's what he's dealing with. In fact, he begins, as we look at the, at the very first verse, Romans 11.1, 1, I say then, has God cast away His people? I think I'm both on, bro. Woo! I'm going to start hollering and it's going to... Okay. <clears throat> I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he, he tells us right in verse 1, if you think maybe it's not quite uh, uh, forthright enough, in verse 2 he says it very plainly. But in verse 1 he says, Has God cast off Israel? He chose them. He made them his own peculiar people. He made promises to them of things he was going to do through the nation. And as he did this, Scripture lays out for us that he has not cast them off, though they have rejected him. If we go through the Old Testament, one of the stunning things that we find as we work our way through the Old Testament is that God, the Father, called Israel His wife. And there were many times God said, I'm going to divorce you because you're unfaithful. You're always running around with other gods. You're always turning your back on me. But what we discover as we work our way from Genesis all the way through Malachi is that He never did. He, did He judge His people? Absolutely He judged His people. You know that the Bible declares that judgment begins where? In the house of God. I'm always a little careful when people start calling for God's judgment. Be careful, you're asking that to happen on you. You might think you're aiming it at all those people out there that are sinners. But God expects them to be sinners. God's not shocked that people outside in the world who do not have a relation with Him are sinners. He's not shocked. But God has a different outlook when He looks at His people, at His church, or at His nation, the nation of Israel. So as we look at chapter 11, this is what Paul is dealing with. Because there, there came a point in the church when the church began to believe that the church replaced Israel. And Israel's over, and now God's working with the church. And he, He's not working 
through or for or has no plans for Israel because they rejected the Messiah. That's it. And a lot of anti-Semitism came as a result. A lot of times during the Crusades, when, when oftentimes we think of the Crusades going over and freeing the Holy Land, but we, we forget part of the Crusades was to see how many Jews they could kill. That was the church. And as we look at this section that we're going to look at in chapter 11, and we, we probably won't finish it today. I know that's shocking for most of you. I'm hoping to get through the six verses. I'm going to have to get to them pretty soon if that's going to happen. But if, what we see in that, in that move, in that, in that move of, of anti-Semitism in the church, uh, uh, pushing or, or, or looking away from from Israel and what's going on with them and what's happening with them. What we discover as we look here in Romans chapter 11 is that God's not done with Israel now. He wasn't done with Israel in the 1000s. He has a plan and a purpose for Israel right now, today. Please understand that that does not mean everything that Israel does is right. And everything everyone else does is wrong. What it does mean is that God has a plan for Israel. And what we're going to look at specifically this morning is that God always has a remnant. Now, if I say God always has a remnant, what does that mean? Oh, you guys are so quick. He always has a remnant. Does he have a remnant now? Absolutely, because he always has it. We should be able to grasp that concept. God always has a remnant. He has a remnant in Israel. That's why the Word of God calls us, are we ever not to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Are we ever not to pray for God's direction over the nation of Israel? Is there a time when we're supposed to turn our back, even though the things they do may not be right? What has God taught us in His relationship with them? Think about the prophet Hosea. Everybody remember the prophet Hosea? In case you're a little fuzzy, Hosea was the guy who was getting ready to get married, you know, come into Marian age. And God said, I have the perfect bride for you, Hosea. I want you to marry a prostitute. And I'm pretty sure Hosea wasn't stoked about the idea. But he did. And just like you might imagine, she was never faithful to him he names his first son not my people it kind of shows the relationship that Israel had with her God does that change God's love for them does it change the truth that God had a remnant even during that time but does it mean that they are always right you guys get what I'm saying Israel is a perfect illustration of every human who comes to a relationship with Christ. Because we are all at least as disobedient as them when we begin. But God, right? Because the per, the, the, the picture of conversion for I believe every believer is Paul. That's why he uses himself as an example. Remember? He said, has God cast off Israel? Certainly not. 
For I also am an Israelite. So he points to himself, right? Paul says, I'm an Israelite. He, he gives his, his uh, genealogy of sorts. He says, I'm of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. I am an Israelite. How did Paul get saved? He was walking around searching for God, right? He was thinking, you know, I'm going to find him. Looking under this rock and behind that bush, I'm going to find God. No, what was he doing? He was persecuting the church. Every single person's relationship with Christ begins as an enemy of God. Not just some people. Every single person begins their life as an enemy of God. Sin makes us at enmity with God. We're His enemy, just like Paul. And somewhere in our journey, whether on our way to Damascus, or on our way to Twin Falls, or maybe Castleford, I gotta give some Castleford love because they get brutalized all the time, huh? Yeah. Somewhere along our journey, what happens? God shines His light into our life. Now it might not be like it was for Paul. Physical light stops you, drops you, and you hear the voice of God. But every one of your conversions, God did that in your soul and in your spirit. That's how you came to be saved. You came to be saved because God loved you so much that He brought someone who shared the gospel. And that gospel was the light. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. As the gospel is presented, faith is birthed in our lives. That faith that is birthed in our lives now sees the light. Before we were blind, but now I see. We've all felt that way, right? We've all felt that in our conversion, maybe not the blindness and all the stuff Paul went through, but we can certainly see it as a metaphor for our relationship with God and how God intervened in our life. So Paul's message when he's talking about the nation of Israel, and in chapter 9 when when Paul was talking about the election of the nation, God's choosing of them, and the question is, well, did God mess up? Did He do something wrong because He chose them, but they rejected Him as a nation? He's not talking about individual salvation at this point, although we're going to move toward that direction. But what He's talking about is, nationally, the people of Israel have not seen. But So is God done with them? Paul says, no, look what God did in my life. Eventually, what we're going to see happen in the nation of Israel is what happened to Paul. What eventually we're going to see happen in the nation of Israel is what happened to you. Eventually, what we're going to see happen to the nation of Israel is what happened on Pentecost. Who got saved? 3,000 what? Jews. What about the next few days? And they, they were preaching at the temple. How many were added? Somebody remember? 5,000, right? So whether the 3,000 became 5,000 or 5,000 more came in, we don't know. But we do know this. At the time of Josephus, Josephus wrote that there were 100,000 Jews who came to faith. So when God says, I always have a remnant, believe it. He always has a remnant in the nation that He called for His purpose to be 
a light unto the Gentiles that we might recognize. The danger in chapter 11, we're going to get to the part where he says, now you guys who were wild olive trees and I stuck into the natural olive tree, don't start thinking that you somehow are better than the natural olive tree. Don't start thinking of Israel such a bunch of knuckleheads. I don't know why they don't ever get it. Because we all are broken. Not most, not some, not a few. We are all. If you're not broken, or you don't know you're broken, I'm not sure you know God yet. Because the only way you know God is in your brokenness. That's where we see him. So this is what Paul's saying. I am the example. One day God's going to shine that light. Listen, in 1 Timothy 1.16, here's what the word says. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy. This is Paul talking. I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern. get it oh i thought jackie was making all that stuff up oh it's incredible all the stuff that's in the bible huh if we take the time to open it up and let god speak to us as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life he says my conversion is an ex is a is a experience that not only did i have but that all people who come to faith they'll see a pattern in it in their own conversion Praise God, man. Well, as we continue to the idea, the concept of Israel, I want you to get an idea how all that's going to come to play. So here's a great test for you guys. Hold your thumb in Romans. We're coming back. Zechariah. Just because it starts with Z does not mean it's at the end. Wouldn't it be easier if the Bible did that alphabetical? Well, sorry. It's not going to be alphabetical. Zechariah chapter 12. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 i won't spend a lot of time on it or i'll never get to verse 2 so but we're going to look at this is zechariah 12 and 13 from verse 10 on god's plan of the restoration of israel how god's going to do the work let's look at it. it says and i will pour on the house of david and on the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication how's god going to do it same way he did it for you how were you saved by grace or it wasn't because you're so good no it's in spite god saved you in spite of yourself not because of yourself he says i'm going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication then they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimon, in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei, by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. And in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David 
and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. He begins by saying, they're going to look on me. Did you catch that? Whom they have pierced. You know who's talking? It's not Zechariah, right? God's talking. God says, they're going to look on me whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn for him. I love it when God does stuff like that. He's going to mourn for the Messiah, the rejection of Messiah, and what that wrought in their lives. And they're going to mourn. There's going to be this, this great mourning, this great cry, as Israel recognizes we're broken. We messed up. We're just as bad as the Gentiles. That's an important day in a person's life, isn't it? I'm broken by sin. And they're going to mourn. Everybody mourns themselves. By themselves. You, get, you don't get to come to Jesus as a family. Well, you can, but you've got to do it individually. You get what I mean? Everyone individually mourns over their sin. Everyone individually calls on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. It's not my dad called on his name and now I'm saved. It doesn't work that way. And as everyone's mourning, the scripture says that a fountain will be opened. What's the fountain do? It cleanses them. It washes them clean. They come to faith on the day that they recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. All those false gods. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Oh, you know there's an unclean spirit in the land right now? If you read the book of Revelation, you know that one of the, one of the areas that the letter was, letters were written to was the place where Satan's throne is. I know a lot of times we think that Satan's busy working on us over here, but yeah, he's not. It's probably one of his little underlings that's over here in the States. Satan's got bigger fish to fry. There's an unclean spirit in the Middle East. Don't you see it on the news? When you look at the news and all the hate and the garbage going on and the way people are destroying one another and all that stuff, all the stuff that we don't like about human nature. When you see it, the Lord says, I'm going to get rid of this unclean spirit. I'm going to get rid of all the false gods. I'm going to get rid of all the false prophets. He says in 13.4, he says, And it shall be in the day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And they will not wear the robe of coarse hair to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. I mean, people will stop saying, God told me. I get in trouble when I talk about stuff like that. Every person on earth who does that is going to give an account to God. You better not be wrong. So I'd be real careful with the phrase, God told me, thus saith the Lord. 
I'd be real careful about that because God wants to do a, a, a true work and not a work of presumption. He says, no false prophets anymore. He says, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. The only one true prophet. And by his stripes, we are healed. Where'd you get them scars, Messiah? Ministering in the house of my friends. In verse 7 he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come to pass in all the land, says the Lord that two-thirds will be cut off and die, but one-third will be left in it. And I will bring one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. And I will answer them and say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. On the day that Israel recognizes her Messiah, calls out to her Messiah, receives her Messiah. Two-thirds of the nation will perish. One-third is true. Nobody gets in the family of God just by birth. Jesus said, God could raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. Don't boast that you're a son of Abraham. That's not the key. The key is, do you believe in the one that the Father sent? Because if you don't, you don't have the Father either. So Paul gives himself that example. Who, who's the one-third? The one-third, guys, that's the remnant. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 11. That there's always a remnant. Look, you were afraid we weren't going to get there. Look at verse 2. Romans 11. God has not cast away his people whom he Foreknew. Don't you love it when the Bible uses words like that that causes such mental anguish? But if God foreknew, then did I really have a choice? Yes. Didn't it feel like a choice? Yeah. Well, then you had a choice. What is the problem? But if he knew what I was going to do, then I didn't really... You are really thinking too hard. Give that little brain a rest. We know that the call of grace went out to all men. We also know that all men did not receive it. But we know, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that what we just read in Zechariah 2? What did he say? And they will call my name and I will answer them. That's how. It's, it's all the same. The call, the gospel is spread. The gospel goes out. God has not cast away His people. Even though He foreknew them. Even though He elected them. Even though He chose them when there was nothing good in them. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, do you remember? It says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And everybody gets all worked up. But God spoke that in Malachi a thousand years after the nations were established. When they were born in their mother's womb, you remember what God said to her? There are two what? 
nations fighting in your belly right now. Now, how could God say that? Because He foreknew. And so God chose Jacob rather than Esau. Why? Because He foreknew. He knew who they were. His choice always rests in His foreknowledge of what He knows about the individual. You know the Bible. We work our way through the Word of God. It talks about the election of the saved. The saved are elect of God. I don't have any problem with that. The lost got there by their choice. You're going to have a hard time showing me the election of the lost. You'll try it with Pharaoh, but you'll lose. And if you want to debate later, we can. Because I always love a good debate. Huh, Jace? Where'd you go? He's hiding somewhere. Oh, back row? Really? Man. Okay, so well, that's enough of foreknowledge. Or, or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? Second example, how he pleads with God. What's, that? what's those next two words? How he pleads with God. A what? Against Israel. Do you catch that? Wait a minute, let's look at that again. That's got to be wrong, right? Elijah, prophet of God, he would never plead with God against Israel. Let's look. So do you remember what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Sure enough. This is why it's always dangerous, I think, to take the place of pleading with God against Israel. Israel is God's elect. The apple of his eye. I'm okay with that. I don't want to, I don't want to plead with God like Elijah did against Israel. Now remember the story. Elijah, 450 high priests of Baal. And they they're have this big battle, right? Who's the real God? How long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, worship Him. If Baal's God, worship Him. They did the contest. Everybody together. Fire come out of heaven. Elijah won. He's excited. He's running all the way. He ran into one woman. One cranky woman has the ability to turn a man to flight like none other. He runs, in, he runs into Jezebel. And Jezebel says, you know, a little disheartening thing, like this time tomorrow I'm going to kill you. And so he runs and gets into a cave. And in that cave, God calls to him and says, Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah pleads against Israel. God, they're broken. They're so messed up. They don't ever do what they're supposed to do. They don't, they don't act like they're supposed to act. They don't, they're, they're, they're just... God, would you just be done with them? Just be done with them. Don't make me go back. Aren't you glad God was not ever done with you? He pleads against Israel. A couple of things. Look what he says. First, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. First charge. Didn't they kill? Didn't Jesus say that? 
He said, how many times have I wanted to gather you together like a, like a mother hen gathers, gathers her, I gotta slow down, her chicks beneath her wings. That's hard to say that. But you were what? Not willing. So, but I thought Israel, the apple of God's eye, they must always be right. Sure, sure. Let's, 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 let's figure that out. Um, every Christian here today in church, are you right? Oh, oh, how many of you fought on the way here? Don't raise your hands. How many of you are still fighting? You haven't said a word yet. I'm not going to talk to him till he hears the end of this message. He better repent. Yeah, is a Christian always right? Do they always do the right things? Do they always say the right things? Do they always act the right way? The obvious answer is no. You're still broken. Just because you're saved doesn't make you perfect now. You have a better chance because you have Jesus Christ working in you, working on your desires, changing those inward uh, impulses that would align with Him. And if you want to follow Christ, then you're going to do better things. But you're not going to be perfect. Right? He says, they kill your prophets. What else does He say they do? Not only do they kill your prophets, they tear down your altars. Yeah, they tear down your altars, God. Elijah's mad at the people of Israel. They kill your prophets. They tear down your altars. Is that all he has to say? Let's look. They, then, then he says, and I alone am left. I am the last good person on earth. And they're going to get me next. That's the four things. Kill your prophets, tear down the altars, I'm the last good guy left, and they're coming after me. But the problem is, it's not all true, right? Because God's going to answer Elijah. He says, in, in this example, considering Elijah and what happened with him, what was the divine response? What did God's answer say? I have reserved for myself 7,000 others. You're not alone who have not bowed the knee. Let me say it in another way. I always have a remnant. There is a remnant today in Israel. Is Israel always right? Nope. Is, is Israel guilty of oppression? Yes. Well, this might not be popular, but you know they're guilty of oppression, right? I, I understand Somewhat, I don't live there, but I, I, I have been there. It's an oppressive government for some people. Does that change the fact that she's God's chosen? Does God have a, a loyal, saved remnant there? Absolutely. What's He want me to do for Him? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You notice, he wants us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know how many different kinds of people live in Jerusalem? Oh, you'd be blown away. There's Jews and Arabs and Palestinians, if there is such a thing. And there is every other Ethiopians. uh, Gosh, I can't even think of them all. There's a lot. So when you pay for the... Pray... (laughs) Lord, have mercy. When you pray... For the peace of Jerusalem, you know you're praying for all of them. Right? 
that there would be peace there, that they would come to see their Messiah. What's going to change the nation of Israel so that there are less oppressive things? Don't get me wrong, I am a supporter of Israel, so don't think I don't support them. I I got a flag at my house and everything. But I'm also not blind. I can see what's going on. So what's going to change it? Same thing is going to change United States of America. What's that? Man, they need a new spirit within them. The spirit of grace poured out upon them. The knowledge of their Messiah. They need Jesus. We can pass all the laws we want in the United States. Is anything going to change? No. The nature of man is still broken. Broken. He's broke. And he needs remade. By Jesus Christ. And when that happens, the battle ends. And the king reigns. And that's what Elijah, I think the whole point of Elijah, and what he's saying about Elijah. Look, he's saying, man, consider Elijah. We don't want to look at, at Israel like they did during the, the crusades as Christ killers. Man, if you think that, I like what, yeah, stop. I don't know how to say anything good now. Um, you guys remember, you guys remember the passion of the Christ? And I don't know how you feel about Mel Gibson. I'm not saying he's a saint. But one of the things he did in filming that, they asked him, because there's always a lot of anti-Semitism that rises up about a passion play. Uh, which is what the Passion of the Christ was. Um, because Jews get really sensitive that people are going to start killing Jews and call them Christ killers and do all that stuff. So Mel Gibson did something kind of special in the filming of it. When they said, who put Jesus on the cross? Mel Gibson said, literally, I did. It was my hand holding the nail and driving it in. He filmed it with his hands doing it to symbolize the reality That it was all of our sin that put Christ on the cross. We put him there. So there's no blame going around. God's not in heaven blaming anybody. He's in heaven saying, believe and be saved. Receive the grace of God and experience all that God has for us. So what does this mean? What does this mean to us? Well... The divine response, I have a remnant. So look at verse 5. Even so then, at this present time... Oh, we're back to today. At this present time, there is a remnant according to... I love this phrase. The election of grace. See, before you go tweaking election, pay attention to what he just said. Literally, they are chosen by grace. How does anybody get into the family of God? The same way. Because you're good enough for it, because you did something, you said enough Hail Marys, or you or you did whatever absolution that you needed to do. No. It's grace. You were chosen by grace. The same word, the election of 
of grace. That word election, the same word in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, speaking of Paul, he is a chosen vessel of mine. God picked Paul. You know what else is important to know? He picked you. But you say, well, I have, I've never received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But then he hasn't picked you. Well, what do you mean? Well, receive him and then he will have picked you. Well, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I... Well, then he didn't pick you. I don't know what to tell you. It's simple. Really simple. If you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are chosen before the foundation of the world. That God foreknew your day of decision. Maybe that's today. He saw it. And He said, You are a chosen vessel of mine. Chosen by grace. For by grace we have been saved. Amen? In 2 Timothy 1.9 it says... Paul writing, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began. If you really want to melt your noodle, work that out. God picked me before I did anything. Yep. Before I chose, God picked me. Yep. I chose God because He picked me. Yeah, that's all true. It will mess with your noodle. However, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, the call is out. It is available. Look at verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. There's not any more plain way to say this. Okay, you are saved by grace, period, not of works. Period. If you are saved by works, then it's not grace. If you think you are saved by works, listen, this is important. You're not saved. You don't get saved. uh, Well, I accidentally thought it was by works, but God saved me by grace. Well, God saves by grace. But if you think you're earning your salvation, you're not saved. There's only one way. One name by which men must be saved. Jesus Christ. Only by grace. And so because grace is so often misunderstood, I'm going to spend nine minutes talking about grace. And then we're going to pray. But when we talk about it, this I just want you to hear it, please. There are so many times the word grace is mentioned in Scripture. And I pulled out, I don't even know how many, like a lot. And we're going to work our way through them. And then we're going to talk about four warnings dealing with grace. And then we're going to pray. But as we do, I just want you to grasp it. Because listen, most often people have a... a, a, a Poor understanding of grace. They think of grace as some kind of cosmic hug where God just naturally forgives you when you do everything wrong. And while while grace can include that sort, 
sort of. That's not what grace is. So let's look at what it is. I always like to study the true. So let's look at what it is. Grace, number one, came by Jesus Christ. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is a gift. It's given through Jesus Christ. We are justified by grace. Remember I told you we're broken and God does this miracle of healing us called justification. We're justified by grace in Romans 3.24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified by grace. Our salvation is a gift of God's grace. In Romans 5.15. But the free gift... Not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. Our salvation is a gift of God's grace. Grace is greater than our sin. Isn't that good news? Moreover, The scripture tells us in Romans 5.20, The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Super abounded. Grace is greater than our sin. All believers are under grace and not under the law. If you are under the law, you are not a believer. That's what I was saying earlier. All believers, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. One of the things we talked about as we were working our way through justification, sanctification, glorification, and and salvation as a whole, was this concept. You are either wholly, totally, and completely saved by grace, or you are wholly, totally, and completely saved by works. There's no mix. And since the Bible says you can't be saved by works, you can only be saved how? By grace. How am I sanctified? By grace. How am I glorified? By grace. Not works. It's not a works relationship with Christ. Are you saying, Jackie, we don't, we don't do nothing? Well, no, that's not what I, did I say that? No, I said it's not works. You're not saved by works. So we do do something. Well, yeah. You do all kinds of stuff. You do it because you love God. That's not work. I got my grandkids with me. One more day. That's why there's no study tonight. And when they come up to me and say, Papa, will you make me some hot chocolate? If it was JC, I would say, no. Go make your own hot chocolate, you knucklehead. Why do I got to make you a hot chocolate? But something happens when they're grandkids. Yeah, I'll go make it. And it's not work. 
We call that love. You get it? We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. God is the God of all grace. 1 Peter 5.10 But may the God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. Nobody has this on their refrigerator, by the way. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Did you catch that? Sometimes when we're in suffering, we think, oh man, what, what do people talk about grace. Where's God's grace now? It's there. What are you talking about? By God's grace, He's allowing you to suffer. So that your character will be developed and you will be established and strengthened. It's all good stuff. God's grace is sufficient to sustain us through anything. Any illness. Any trial. Any struggle. Any issue. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, Most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, suffering, reproach, illness, in my needs, persecution, distresses for Christ's sake, because when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace sustains, sounds like more than a cosmic hug, right? God's grace has appeared to all men. This is important. Because it does battle with the concept that God didn't give grace to everyone. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Everybody remembers, right? You know I'm going to do it. And all does what? And that's all that all means. So all men, God's grace has appeared to all men. Grace characterizes the throne of God and is always given to help us, to strengthen us, to carry us through. Listen, in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may get what? Obtain mercy and find grace for what? To help in time of need. Is grace just a cosmic good, you know, God patting you on the shoulder saying, it's okay, you messed up? Grace is an empowerment that gives you what you need when you are in trouble. That strengthens you in your suffering. That saves you. Grace is kind of an important deal, right? It's something that we want to make sure that we understand we have. Grace is something that we need in order to serve God. In Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, then let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So grace is equipping us for service. Grace is given to the humble, right? James 4, 6. But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Spiritual gifts and empowerments of God come from the manifold grace of God. In 1 Peter 4, 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards 
of the manifold grace of God. Believers, we are exhorted to grow in grace, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Scripture teaches us that believers were chosen before the world began so that we would be trophies of the grace of God. Let's look at it. Ephesians 1.6 To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Trophies of the grace of God. And finally, the Lord will continue to show us in the ages to come the exceeding riches of His grace. Ephesians 2, seven That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So grace, that's a big deal. The favor, empowerment of God. Unmerited, undeserved, free gift that God gives. It's big. So much bigger than we give it credit for. But there, remember, are four important warnings about grace as we work our way through Scripture. And I want to leave you with these this morning. First off, a rejection of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is described as an insult to the Spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.29 By the way, Hebrews 10, scary scripture. Hebrews 6, I can work my way through. Hebrews 10, I can't. Hebrews 10 seems to say what it says. But Hebrews 10, 29 says this, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. It's a rejection of Christ. Rejecting the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is called insulting the Spirit of grace. Here's another one. This is probably the most important part or concept of grace for our nation. Refusing to repent is described as coming short of the grace of God. Hear that again. Refusing to repent. How are you saved? By grace. Refusing to repent is falling short of the grace of God. Grace is not a do what you want, get out of jail free card. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, I live my life any way I want to. Gosh, there's just one small problem. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted the blessing, he was rejected. 
Why? Because he found no place for repentance. Though he sought it diligently with tears. That doesn't mean he sought repentance and couldn't find it. It means he would not repent, so he couldn't find the blessing. You got to. Got to. That's why so many things are hot button topics for the church today. That's why it's important that the church teaches that homosexuality is a sin. But I'm not saying they're any more or less broken than me. But it's a sin and it must be repented of or you will fall short of grace. And it's not the only one. A lot of that, That's just the easy one to point to. And I wanted to get that on CD so I could send it to Houston. <laughs> if, they, if they want to ask me, I'll send them whatever they want. Knock yourself out. Uh, three hots and a cot, I'll start a prison ministry, no big deal. But it's important that we teach sin is sin and not to your sin is okay. It's not okay if you are living together outside of God's ordained relationship of marriage and that's unrepentant. That's not okay. You are falling short of grace. God does not just say, well, whatever you do is okay. It's no big deal. I'll give you the cosmic hug of grace. That's not what Scripture teaches. Don't fall short of grace. Is it not extended to you? It's extended to all men. Well, then what do I got to do? I got to do what Esau wouldn't. I have to repent. That means I go to the Lord and I say, God, maybe I don't like this. But it's in your word. So either it's true or it's a lie. And if it's true, then I need to repent and be right with you. Because... That's more important than the things I want to do. Right? Or it's not. And if it's not, then I guess my next question would be, is he really your treasure? It's a big deal. That we would not abuse the grace of God. Next, resisting God's standards of sexual purity is called turning the grace of God into lasciviousness in Jude 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Savior Jesus Christ. You paid attention to that last phrase, right? I just, I just, it's so vital that we hear it. Certain men crept in long ago were marked out for condemnation. What did it mark there? Ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lewdness. The word is aseldia. means to cast off all moral restraint. To live your life on or without morals. Certainly without biblical morals. Wouldn't you say that's kind of a big deal in the church today? I mean, there's a lot of that. And we just excuse it. And we say, well, you're under grace. That's not what the Bible says. Don't say that stuff. Because the Bible says if that's how you're living your life, listen, 
they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot say out of one side of your mouth, I love Jesus and I'm a believer and I'm a Christian, and then with your life, deny Him. One is true and one is false. This is what James said. I don't mean to muddy the waters, but this is what James said. You show me your faith with your tongue. This is a Jackie paraphrase. Sorry. I'll show you my faith by my actions. What I do. What I do didn't save me. It's the fruit or evidence that what my lips say is true. You get it? And then last thing. I keep saying that, huh? You're thinking, it's lunchtime. Jackie, come on. Seriously, last, last, last. Returning to the law in order to be declared righteous is called frustrating the grace of God. Some people think that I got saved by grace, but I keep my salvation by works. No. You're saved by grace and you keep your salvation by grace. God keeps you. You don't keep you. If it depends on you, you're lost. In Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Did Christ die in vain? Then righteousness does not come through the law. Galatians 5.4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Grace is no little thing. Big deal. That's why we sing songs about amazing grace. Because grace is amazing. Truly. But it's vital that we recognize what grace is and what grace isn't. And I hope this morning you had an opportunity to look at something. And I, and I hope you've been provoked. And I hope if there is a dark spirit over your heart about your relationship with Christ, then you get it straight before you leave. Because it's still grace. And it's still free. And it's still available. The Lord said in the last chapter, remember, all day long I hold out my hands to a contrary and disobedient people. He was talking about Israel, but guess what? We're just like him. Did he give up on you? Is he going to cast you to the side because you didn't measure up? Because you didn't get it right? You know how you know he's not going to? Because he didn't do it to Israel. He's not going to do it to you. Just get it right. Be right. Don't wait for tomorrow. The Bible is very clear. Today is the day. Now is the time. If there's issue, if you got stuff going on in your heart and life, get it right. That's why we got these people up here to pray. It's not because they're so handsome and wonderful and so we have ask them to come up to, to make friends with people. No. They come up to pray so that if you got something you need to pray about and go before the Lord to the throne of grace and to receive the help you need to overcome it, they're here. To help you do that. Lord, we want to just uh, enter into your throne of grace. Help 
in the time of need. To recognize, God, that you don't tell us these things. You don't lay out these concepts for us in in your word to make us unsure about our salvation. You do it so that we can be sure. So that we stop lying to ourselves that that I can live and do and be whatever I want to live, do, or be. What I live or am or become is dependent upon your word. God, I pray that you would, by your spirit of grace, move through this place, Lord. That we would come to know, truly, that your grace is amazing, incredible, necessary, empowering, beautiful, and amazing. God, we just give you the praise and the glory as we seek your face now. We ask that you would close out this time, Father, with worship as we seek your face and be glorified, God, in all we say or do in Jesus' name. Amen.